This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest I think you're really going to enjoy. So I started a series where we look at the work of philosopher Nick Land. He's somebody who had a lot of impact on the neo-reactionary political sphere somebody who is really influencing people who are kind of talking about politics now, but hasn't gotten as much love as, say, somebody like Curtis Yarvin, because he tends to be a little harder to read, a little more difficult to tackle. And so I'm inviting different guests on to break down passages from Nick Land so we can better understand kind of the concepts behind them and how they apply to the world we see around us. Joining me today is YouTuber Last Things. Thanks for joining me, man. Oren, it's a it's a pleasure to be here, and I, I I hope I'm up to the task, ready to ready to talk some land. Yeah, like I said before, you know, this is somebody who it seems very intimidating at first, and I understand he is somebody who uses some language that does obscure what's happening there, kind of maybe maybe overcomplicated in sections. But his work is really important, and so I think it's worth taking the time to kind of slow down, take key passages, and kind of break them apart for people. Now, today we're going to be reading from uh, The Dark Enlightenment, which is the same uh, document we were reading from on Monday with The Prudentialist. Uh, different section, though, here. This is going to be section one. Now, what's interesting about this, again, is that this document is in response to uh, Curtis Yarvin and his work over at Unqualified Reservations. Nick Land was somebody who was a Marxist, was somebody on the left, worked a lot with a very kind of radical left-wing people but made a, an interesting journey over to kind of the right. And, and his interaction with Curtis Yarvin's work was a very important part of that. Now, last things you were telling me, you wanted to talk a little bit about kind of your interactions with Nick Land, your understanding and how that kind of relates to Curtis Yarvin's work. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, obviously I'm, 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 I'm a fan and admirer and I, I second everything you have to say about, um, about the man, um, I think a few things to kind of put on the table before we dive into the text. Um, you're correct that he this is very explicitly, as people will see, a response to 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 Moldbug directly. Yeah, he quotes from him quite liberally within the Dark Enlightenment. And what I'd say about these two thinkers together, and it's funny because I think both of them they have very different styles, but I think both probably cause a lot plenty of readers to to you know close their laptops or you know throw the book <laughs> if they have a, an actual print copy across the room um because they both can be very very dense and and filled with a lot of um illusions that that might not be that that clear uh, I, I think both also have a pretty biting and wicked sense of humor i think one thing though that that distinguishes land for me is this is a criticism that I think you you and I share, Oren, and I think I've heard you articulate this on a few occasions. One of the big, and I love I love Yarvin as well, but one of the big um, issues that that some people have taken up with him is that he's not a particularly theological thinker, um, and you know, for all of his for all of his critique of a kind of you know 
materialist, technocratic society, he is in some ways kind of still a, a creature of that world, and it's 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 denizen. Um, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of kind of theology or overriding metaphysics. I don't think that Moldbug really talks much about about good and evil. Although that's not true. He he does. Although when he does, he's quick to sort of formalize it and materialize it. You know, he's got the essay. Um, There's no such thing as chaotic good. And he, with Moldbug, you have a thinker who sort of equates good and evil to um, effective and ineffective government or, or, or order and chaos. Very kind of utilitarian, kind of pragmatic measurements of, um, of the good and um, that which is evil. And I think with land, by contrast, you do have somebody who's much more of a, I think, deeply theological writer. Um, I think people associate horror a lot more with land. And I think funny enough, he, he not just, uh, doesn't just inspire philosophers and, and nonfiction, but he's had a fair amount of influence on a lot of fiction. You can see sort of the shadow and influence of Nick Land in a writer like Zero HP Lovecraft. Um, Moldbug coined that phrase, Cthulhu only swims leftward, but Nick Land is really somebody who kind of took the Cthulhu aesthetic, kind of the Lovecraftian horror, the cosmic horror, and ran with that. Um, and I think more fully expresses that. Um, and I think you do have, you, you do have kind of a more religious thinker, a bit more of a pessimist. You know, the feeling that I get when I read Moldbug is, you know, despite all of the kind of cynical and unsettling observations he makes, you have a pretty jolly Virgil on your on your journey. You know, mm. he's like reading Kurt Vonnegut or something like that. You got somebody, he, he might be describing the end of the world, but he's doing it with like, you know, a, uh, a skip in his step. Um, I think with somebody like Land, you've got somebody that's um, kind of stopping to process a lot more of the the kind of horror and existential dread and cosmic implications of a lot of Moldbug's thought. Um, the last thing I'll say about the two of them is I, I do think it's interesting that one is uh, an American, Moldbug, of course, and another is uh, British. And I think it's interesting to kind of frame them as, as a, a European reacting to progressivism and an American reacting to progressivism, because I think that that's, I don't know, that, that, that somehow differentiates them to me. I think that um, land seems a bit more tied to a lot of continental philosophy in a way that I, I don't think Moldbug necessarily uh, uh, derives a lot of his, his thinking from, but that's, that's what I have to say as sort of initial comments about how those, those two writers relate to each other. Yeah, and I think that's really essential because, like you said, Moldbug is, of course, a programmer, right? He's by trade, he's a computer programmer, he's a systems analyst. And so he's looking at this, uh, you know, kind of societal decline as just a, a, a problem to be kind of rewritten, you know, redone. Okay, well, yeah, maybe humanity has fallen, you know, maybe maybe, maybe there's a, a spiritual death here, but that's not really Moldbug's problem. He just wants to figure out how to kind of make the managerialism flow again, kind of make, make the bureaucracy work again as where land is, I think addressing more of what you're talking about, the philosophical, the philosophical ramifications and the spiritual ramifications 
of what has happened. Now, he's not always very, in fact, he's almost never optimistic about that, but he is addressing those in very interesting ways. And that does bring a different lens to things that I, I think um, makes these these two works, uh, you know, Unqualified Reservations and The Dark Enlightenment uh, work very well together in tandem. Uh, though, as I understand, uh, you know, uh, Moldbug claims he's never read uh, any of this. Yarvin claims he's never read any of this. Uh, so I, I don't know if he could ever learn anything from land there, but, uh, uh, but it's yeah, certainly I think that, I think that, you know, in some ways, maybe if, you, if, if we have any youngians listening, you might consider Nick land to be sort of Yarvin's shadow. But if, if anybody has, has ever found certain elements of, of Yarvin's writing to be a bit, a bit soulless, I don't feel that way about it, but I, I do think with Nick land, you do find the, the, the soul um <laughs> that might be absent from Yarvin's more um programmatic writing but it is it's a dark 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 abyssal soul that one finds when reading Nick Land well we are about to read about zombie apocalypse so that said let's go ahead and pivot to the text itself all right so we're starting here uh in uh in part one of uh the dark enlightenment and I'll just go ahead and read here and we'll, uh, as we've done previously with uh, kind of these episodes, we'll just stop as as we go and comment on the sections we're reading there and explain different uh, different sections. So for the hardcore neo-reactionary, democracy is not merely doomed, it is doom itself. Fleeing it approaches an ultimate imperative. The subterranean current that propels such anti-politics is recognizably Hobbesian. A coherent dark enlightenment devoid of its beginning of any or devoid uh, from its beginning of any uh, Rousseauian uh, enthusiasm for popular expression. Uh, predisposed in any case to perceive the political awakening uh, masses as a howling irrational mob, it conceives the dynamics of democratization as fundamentally degenerative, systematically consolidating and exacerbating private vices, resentment, and uh, deficiencies until they reach the level of collective uh, criminality and comprehensive social corruption. Uh, so, I mean, that last kind of part there <laughs> sounds a lot like our current society, right? Um, you know, private uh, vices exacerbated, uh, you know, into what has basically just become the entire driving ethos of our government you know we we just have you know we had pride month going on and uh joe biden talking about how you know trans kids are the soul of our of our nation and uh our our armed forces saluting uh the pride flag uh it's hard to say that you know that that last sentence hasn't really come to pass yeah absolutely and um i mean i, mean, I think this is in here here land is what is what describing what what yarvin kind of terms the the hedonic treadmill um, again, you can kind of see there the more uh, mechanistic kind of language that that Yarvin uses for something like this. Uh, I think the big, a couple big points to draw out of there is is I think what Land is saying, if I could boil it down, is that neo reactionaries don't flee democracy because it, it, in some counterintuitive way, limits self expression. It's that neo reactionaries flee democracy because it it does allow for self expression and self-expression is actually you know not 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 an innate good because there is a certain kind of darkness to the human soul that, that needs to be kind of tempered and and restrained um i mean for anybody that doesn't have just kind of a quick note for for hobbes and rousseau for anybody that's not familiar with those thinker you could thinkers you could sort of put hobbes on the extreme pessimistic 
side of the Western canon, you know, the most famous Hobbesian line is life is nasty, brutal, and short. Whereas Rousseau is sort of the, the opposite. You could put him on the, the farthest optimistic kind of um, pro-social side of the Western canon. You know, Rousseau's most famous idea is that, you know, man, his, man in his natural state was perfect, perfectly good, um, perfectly happy. Um, and it's, it's only through sort of encountering other people and having to deal with the state and, and politics that, that man is, is corrupted. So, um, yeah, reactionary, near reactionary thought, whether it's, it's Yarvin or land, I think is, is certainly far, far more Hobbesian than, than Rousseau. Yeah. And especially in understanding that, uh, the, that people will kind of eventually drive themselves towards these ends, especially if they're acting publicly. That's, that's always kind of a key point to remember here. You know, this is, this is talking about in the political sphere, allowing kind of the political action. Uh, but he, he, uh, follows that up here by saying the democratic politician and the electorate are bound together in a circuit of reciprocal incitement in which each side, each side drives the other to ever more shameless extreme extremities of hooting, prancing camel, uh, hooting, prancing, uh, cannibalism until the only alternative to shouting is being eaten. So kind of dramatic, but not unnecessarily true, right? So the, the democratic politician is constantly egged on by the crowd to make more and more concessions to more and more extreme positions. And once the, you know, politician has been, uh, has, has kind of done that for the crowd, then the, you know, the, the feeds back over to over again is recorded, uh, rewarded for that. The crowd becomes more demanding. The politician becomes more accommodating until you just have this, uh, this acceleration until you get to the point where it, the, the whole point is basically, I will, I will feed you anything you want to stay in power. And the thing that they want increasingly is just the consumption of whatever is available uh, at the hands for appropriation by the democratic politician. Well, well said. Yeah. And I think you and, and the Prudentialist did a good job of, of outlining that on, on your stream as well. Um, it's just sort of that, um, that the civil religion of, um, you know, finding the next, uh, <laughs> the next group that is repressed or the next, you know, custom that needs to be uh, revoked or repealed or, or abandoned. And that's just this kind of ever churning mechanism of, of democracy. Absolutely. Uh, where the progressive enlightenment sees political ideas, the dark enlightenment sees appetites. It accepts that governments are made of people and that they will eat well. Setting its expectations as low as reasonably possible, it seeks only to spare civilization from the frenzied, ruinous, gluttonous debauch. From Thomas Hobbes to Hans Hermann Hoppe and beyond, it asks, how can the sovereign power be prevented or at least dissuaded from devouring society? It, con it consistently finds democratic solutions to this problem to be risible at best. And so basically, we're understanding a part about human nature here. And this is, I think, what's really essential for a lot of people when they first interact with neo-reactionary thought and critiques of democracy. They're told that democracy is a way to restrain government. It's a way to control government. It's a way to stop the growth of government power, stop its expansion. However, Land is using some other thinkers, Hobbes, and, uh, and many libertarians will be happy to see Hoppe here, 
Uh, and he's pointing out that actually, especially on the right, there's been a tradition of understanding that democratic government is instead actually the most likely way to expand the power of government, to uh, feed the avarice of government, uh, that a government of unchecked personal will, will of the people, will most likely simply destroy, consume uh, all of these things. And so the question for many of these thinkers is, we know sovereignty is going to continue to exist. So if it's going to exist, how do we best keep it from completely consuming all of the goods in society, completely reappropriating these things until they're gone? And he points out that the, the, you know, uh, the democratic solutions are the most laughable because they're not solutions at all. They're actually accelerants. Yeah, that's all. That's all well said. Um, an accelerant, and I think um, a democracy really sort of create. I mean, he's about to get into this in the next paragraph, but uh, so we can just jump into that. But democracy is is what obfuscates power as opposed to limits power, um, because you don't. There's never an ultimate kind of um, sovereign person responsible that's that's left holding the bag at the end of the day. Exactly. And so he's going to draw from from Hoppe's uh, explanation here. And by the way, for our libertarian fans out there, uh, Hoppe was drawing from Bertrand to Juvenal. So this is this is kind of political theory uh, three ways down. Uh, it's uh, it's land quoting Hoppe, who is basically paraphrasing to Juvenal, if you want to go back and trace the, the style of this thought. But he says Hoppe advocates for an anarcho-capitalist private law society. But between monarchy and democracy, he does not hesitate, and his argument is, is strictly Hobbesian. Quote, as a hereditary monopolist, a king regards the territory and people under his rule as his personal property and engages in the monopolistic exploitation of his property. So that's really, I think that's really important here uh, that maybe that we should stop for a second, because this is the conceit, I think, that a lot of people... Um, take on when they kind of look at the american embrace of popular sovereignty that, that they're not really understanding this truth hoppa says look we're gonna have this sovereign and the way sovereigns work is that they treat them the uh kind of territory under their control as something to be exploited the kind of the maybe maybe the western liberal democratic defendant says no Democracy keeps people from being exploited. It, pre it prevents the exploitation of people. But what kind of Hoppe is addressing right at the beginning here is that government will always exploit people. And so he's going to go on to explain in more detail how the king does that and how that's different from what a democracy does. But he says at the beginning, we can't pretend like governments are not going to do this. They will always be exploiting the things that they own for their own advantage. Yeah, and I I think that's the next paragraph, Oren, that goes into um, kind of mo monarchy and the, the hereditary monarch. I might have mm -hmm. some comments after that, but it's probably best to get that out on the table first. Sure, Leah, let's go ahead and get through our, our quote here from, we're still quoting from Hoppe here. Under democracy, monopoly and monopolistic exploitation do not disappear. Rather, what happens is this, instead of a king and nobility who regard the country as their private property, a temporary and interchangeable caretaker is put into monopolistic charge of the country. 
The caretaker does not own the country, but as long as he is in office, he is permitted to use it, uh, use it to his protege, to his and his protege's advantage. He owns its current use, but not its capital stock. That does not eliminate exploitation. To the contrary, it makes exploitation less calculating and carried out with little or no regard to the capital stock. Exploitation becomes short-sighted and capital consumption will be systematically promoted. So his argument here is not that you know, democracy gets rid of exploitation, but rather it's a, it's a private property argument, right? If I give someone a car who didn't work for it and didn't own it, and who's going to lose the car in the next week or two, the best thing for them to do with a car is to just use it to make as much property or have a, or profit or have as much fun as they want because they don't care about the car. They didn't earn it. It's not theirs, and they won't have it later on. So he says the same thing is happening here with democracy, right? You're basically just turning over to someone for a limited amount of time. And now instead of an owner of that car who's invested in that car, who's going to look after that car because they have to deal with that car every day and they're going to pass that car on to their kid. Instead, the car is simply something, the country in this case, is just something to be used and discarded as soon as the next guy comes around. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is going to probably sound like a, a bit of a lowbrow comment. I, I think all of us, you know, who've been <laughs> who've been raised, uh, you know, in in this in this period of time, we've just been kind of groomed to to understand and to view the the divine right of kings and and hereditary monarchy as as just the most kind of insane, irrational, baseless. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Absurd um, uh, notion. You know, you've got you, you've got a prince who or a princess who's you know probably objectively one of the most, or at least this is how it's always de de deployed and depicted in popular media, the most spoiled and pampered and um, underexposed human being in the world. Probably you know Joffrey Lannister, probably a sociopath um, who's just spent their life uh, you know getting. Um, palm fronds waved in their face. Why would anybody elect that person to be their monarch? You know, and the point that I think you're you're making, Oren, and it's it's kind of once you notice it, it's it's a bit hiding in plain face. But you know, if you know that your child is going to inherit the mess that you make, there's no greater incentive, really, for a monarch to, I, I guess, treat his property or like treat his people, so to speak, with more dignity and respect and care than somebody that's just, you know, going to hand them over to a, a, a new dynasty. And I know this is a bit simplistic, obviously, you know, there've been, there've been catastrophic emperors and, and monarchs, but you know, the, the car analogy holds up well. Like if I know I'm handing off my, my, my car is eventually going to be the hand me down for my son. When he finally gets his driver's license, I'm probably going to rotate the tires. I'm probably going to, um, you know, vacuum, the leather <laughs> gonna get those oil changes right yeah yeah precisely so there's actually i think a fair amount of rational logical um uh 
reason that can kind of go into that the that monarchist model that that's like I'm not about to hand over this car to my enemy. I, I don't. I, I so you know I should probably get its oil changed precisely. Yeah, and, and that's really important because you know his argument is not one of competency, right? Because like you said, this is, we always get this cartoonish spoiled brat who, who's never, you know, every King was just some idiot who's never, you know, uh, they're inbred. They, they can't put, you know, they can't do any math. They can't read. They don't know how to flush the toilet. Right. You know, this, this is all of them. Okay, fine. Even if you want to make that argument uh, and, and, and assume that's going to be the case, like we don't get bad democratic leaders. Like you're, you're literally governed by Joe Biden in theory right now. Come on. <laughs> guy doesn't yeah. even know where he is. Right. You got, you got to get a guy with brain damage in the Senate who we all have to pretend can string sentences together and knows what he's voting on. So right. obviously both democratic and monarchical systems would have bad rulers. Right. And, and, and it, it's always weird because if you talk to somebody about democracy, they get really, you know, Oh, what if you get a bad King? But if you get 10 minutes into their talk about democracy, they hate all of their rulers. All of them are bad. Right? <laughs> like, like, so they're like, well, what if you get a bad Kings? Like, well, you think all of your rulers are bad in the democracy, but right. either way, the, the point is that, whether you have good or bad kings or good or bad uh, democracy, let's say it all shakes out even and you have an equal distribution of both. The king is going to be invested. It's, it's a private property argument. It's an incentive argument as where the, the, the democratic leader is not going to be invested because he will be gone in, a, in, in, you know, four to eight years. And then someone else, probably his rival has to take control of it. And that's a very different dynamic on how then you're going to treat what you're in charge of. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like, you know, the, the renting versus owning analogy is works great as well. Like how, mm -hmm. how, how, not, how well did you treat the apartments that you rented compared to like your first house? Probably rather poorly right. <laughs> by comparison. All right. So we're just going to jump and jump into kind of, uh, uh, so he was quoting hop here. Now we're going back to land's words himself. Political agents invested with transient authority by multi-party democracy, democratic systems have an overwhelming and uh, demonstrably irresistible incentive to plunder society with the greatest possible rapidity and comprehensiveness. Anything they neglect to steal or leave on the table is likely to be inherited by their political successors who are not only unconnected, but actually opposed, and who could therefore be expected to utilize all available resources to the detriment of their foes. So this is a really important dynamic that again both Hop and uh, that Hoppa and uh, Land point out here that the king has to care about what gets passed on to his kids because they're his kids they care about them they want their dynasty to continue they want it to move forward the democratic governance not only do they not care about what's going to come next because they won't be in charge of it but actually the person who's going to follow follow them is most likely their direct adversary. And so anything that is not stolen, anything that is not taken by you, that is not used to the benefit of your political coalition and power going forward, is basically a, a weapon you're handing back to your political opponent, which means your incentive is to make sure that none of that goes forward, that none of that is available to them when you leave. Yeah, you know, that rereading re that section kind of put me in mind of um, conquests, laws, and conquests. Mm -hmm. Conquests, Robert Conquest, the poet, um, he had these three laws um, of politics. And the third law, I, I pulled it up here, Oren. Law number three is the behavior of any bureaucratic organization 
can best be understood by assuming that it is controlled by a secret cabal of its enemies. Um, that quote will probably what will be well familiar to, to, you know, any neo reactionary. Um, but I think that that the nature of that, this is the mechanism which explains that law. The reason why it is, is governed by a cabal of its enemies is because they understand this really is a, a weapon that they will eventually have to hand back to their opponent. Yeah, it's a principal actor problem, right? The people who are in charge of the oversight are not actually the owners of the thing. They're not invested in the uh, future of the thing they're supposed to be working on behalf of. They're invested in their own future. And so they'll, they'll, it looks like they're the enemies of the thing they're operating because they're not working in its interest. They're working in their own interest instead. Exactly. All right. So let me see. Uh, whatever is left behind becomes a weapon in your enemy's hand. Best then to destroy what cannot be stolen. From the perspective of a democratic politician, any type of social good that is that is neither directly appropriable or attributable to their own partisan policy is a sheer waste and counts for nothing. That's really important, guys. Think about the way the Democratic Party operates. If this social good cannot be directly linked, cannot be directly attributed to my own partisan policy, my own coalition, then it's of no good. General good of society does not matter. That's not why I'm in power. The reason I'm in power is to appropriate social goods to my coalition. That is what matters, not the general welfare of the people or the state. Uh, whilst even the most grievous social misfortune, so long as it can be assigned to a prior administration or postponed until a subsequent one, figures in a rational calculus as an obvious blessing. So bad things are actually good as long as we can use them to blame our opponent or they can be put off until our opponents take charge. The long-range techno-economic improvements and associated accumulation of cultural capital that constitutes social progress in its old Whig sense are in nobody's political interests. Once democracy flourishes, they face immediate threat of extinction. So democracy actually destroys the need for a public good because they could, public goods could be left for my enemy or attributed to my enemy. And I only want goods that can be attributed to my coalition and to me. Yeah, the I mean, essentially, democracy is just like a giant game of of hot potato or musical chairs. You know, if you just think of the, the you know, the we, we have to exist under this four year electoral cycle, which, you know, quite honestly, you know, four to eight years is very, a very short amount of time to get any, you know, real measurable cultural change to, to impact a society, especially a society as, you know, vast and, and complex as, as the United States. Um, and, and so the fact that leaders have to kind of hand off this baton every four to eight years um, creates just sort of an incentive structure that's, that's all out of whack. And one other thing I, I think it's worth pointing out is with this, Oren, is, is kind of the strange asymmetry between the left and right, and that it, it does it does always seem that it's easier to stop the music when the conservative or the Republican is in the chair and they take the heat for the the foreign war, for example, or or you mm -hmm. know any kind of economic downturn, um, as opposed to um, things like 
this is what kind of immediately came came to mind. But think of like the lack of formalism around something like racial equality or you know racial equity. So I mean, like since since the 1960s, one would argue that like the left has had all of the money and power and influence and time that they would need. You know, we're talking half a century at this point, 50, 50 plus years to um, right those wrongs. But because there's no kind of formalized, there, there's no king of racial equity. And so there's no dynasty. Yet. There's no yeah. real, there's no monarch of racial justice mm-hmm. that you can point to and say, you should probably be overthrown because if you're the monarch of racial justice, you're doing a terrible job. Like you've had half a century, you haven't really delivered. All you have instead is this massive gray blob of bureaucracy and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of non-elected officials and professors and, you know, senators and media pundits, you know, throwing the potato back and forth. There's no, there's nowhere that you, you can't, it's plain, it's plain hide the sovereign. Nobody has final sovereignty and, and therefore nobody has ever ultimately fully failed in any given project or even worse not only have have your have they not failed it's uh because democracy uh kind of devolves this the the accountability down to the people uh it's not the politicians it's not your ruling class that failed it's your neighbor your neighbor elected joe biden or your neighbor elected donald trump and that's the person that kept the righteous revolution that moving forward and so not only are you not holding your uh your politicians your leaders the people with actual power uh uh to account but you're actually instead trying to hold some amorphous blob of nameless faceless othered uh red or blue americans as the ones who are who are actually at fault for what happened right compare this to kind of like i don't know the the i don't know the political um I guess, spirit of, 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 of the Romans. Like if you were a Roman aristocrat and you were like, you had the idea that you were going to invade Britannia or, you know, Persia or Egypt, I don't know. You'd probably, you'd probably have to say to the Senate and Rome and everybody, look, I'm going to try to conquer this, this, this land, this people. And if I don't, I'm going to literally, like we have the expression fall on my sword, but that's, that's literally what the Romans did. Like that, that is formalism. Like either I will succeed in my stated goal, my campaign, or I will publicly execute myself. You know, like, can you imagine like, I don't know, I'm not picking on him, but like Bernie Sanders, like I'm going to get universal <laughs> health care, or I'm going to, I'm going to cut just myself rips off the gladius. In the middle of this minute and just eviscerates himself for not getting universal health care. Yeah. Yeah. Or like I'm gonna get us out of Syria that. in a year or I'm gonna I'm gonna you're, I'm gonna be publicly executed. Yeah. That yeah, is it, that is formalism at its at its essence. Yeah it's it's a very direct relationship between power and responsibility and it's exactly what our uh, system avoids at pretty much every opportunity. Now he's about to use a phrase time preference many people might already know what that means but if you haven't read Hoppe or other libertarians you might not be familiar with the concept uh last things do you want to explain just kind of quickly what time preference means yeah and i'm if i recall correctly and stop me if i'm I'm getting this wrong in the manner that um land is using it here but really time preference i mean it's it's often something that's 
I think done in in kind of IQ and in intelligence testing. But having having a high, a longer time preference is equated with with patience, planning for the long term, resource management, um, being able to sort of restrain your more primitive animal animalistic desires. You know, there's the famous marshmallow test which they mm-hmm. conduct on 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 little kids where you give a little kid a marshmallow you'll tell them we'll get a second marshmallow if he can wait to eat the first one and then after a certain period of time you give him a second marshmallow some kids accrue a dozen marshmallows other kids just eat their first marshmallow and this apparently tracks on to sort of later successes in life be they you know economic um social marital or, or what have you so ultimately having a having a longer time preference preference is associated with having kind of a higher a higher iq as well as just kind of a higher degree of civility being more civilized being able to plan for the future more more effectively as opposed to sort of living in the now and just sort of satisfying your your immediate base desires sure and and you know uh they're not one-to-ones IQ and time preference, but the big thing to understand is that, like you said, time uh, time preference. If you have a high time preference, you're you're preferring things to happen immediately right now. You're you're unwilling to delay those things in the future. If you have a low time preference, then you're someone who is willing to wait. You can wait for that next marshmallow. You can understand that that delaying that gratification will ultimately lead to something uh, better, more profitable, more efficient. And because civilization requires these things over time, a lower time preference is very often correlated with more complexity, more civilization, more civility, just like you were talking about there. Uh, all right, so we'll just dump in or jump in rather to Land's explanation here. Civilization as a process is indistinguishable from diminished time preference or declining concern for the present in comparison to the future. Democracy, which both in theory and evident historical fact uh, uh, accentuates time preference to the point of convulsive feeding frenzy, is thus as close to a precise negation of civilization as as anything possibly could be, short of instantaneous social collapse into murders, barbarism, or zombie apocalypse, which it eventually leads to. As the democratic virus burns through society, painstakingly accumulated habits and attitudes of forward thinking, prudential, human, and industrial investment are replaced by sterile, uh, orgiastic consumerism, financial incontinence, and a reality television political circus. Tomorrow might belong to the other team, so it's best to eat it all now. So there, he's just explaining that democracy. That if we want, if if civilization is all about low time preference, diminished time preference, where people can put off rewards into the future and plan for the future, look to look to their advantage, the advantage of their children and their grandchildren, the, the, the wider uh, society, then democracy, in fact, uh, incentivizes the opposite. Uh, the politicians are immediately rewarded for consuming those goods and destroying many of these things that were put in place because they had societal value. I say this all the time, you know, traditions are the inculcation of very high cost lessons that your society learned uh, so that you don't have to learn them over again. And, but, but democracy is incentivized to break those traditions, to break down those institutions 
because it can generate more power, more immediate benefit for the current ruler. And the current ruler won't be in charge in a few years. His kids won't be in charge. Nothing that he's connected to. In fact, his enemy will be in charge. So you might as well go ahead and accumulate the most rewards, the most power you can by destroying all those low time preference things that were once part of society. Yeah, I think the one, one, the only one other brief thing I'll, I'll add to that, Oren, is I think it, the, the idea of democracy, there's a little bit of like uh, Uncle Ted's shadow, Ted Kaczynski's influence in both Moldbug and, and Land. If anybody's read um, Industrial Society and its its future, there's a often kind of conflation or it's, it's not one-to-one, but democracy and technology sort of go hand in hand as um, technology is is often something as, as technology improves, one is allowed to sort of um, discard and eschew more and more traditions. Um, you know, we don't have to worry about, uh, you know, a technology like birth control means the tradition of chastity is, you know, bears a le- less immediate impact. You know, you don't you don't suffer the consequences for that. Um, high time preference of premarital sex the way that our ancestors did to use one kind of blunt crude example um, and I, I land kind of touches on this a lot but I think this is more fully expressed in in Kaczynski is democracy is in some ways sort of the handmaiden of technology or, mm-hmm. or de- democracy is the social apparatus that kind of clears the path or sprinkles the roll the rose petals in front of the the feet of the technology you know and you mean you were using this to discuss specifically the t- political dimension of life and the uh shorter time preference but just think about you know we have the preference for the cell phone and and the tweet and the you know an instantaneous information as opposed to reading the entire book over a long period of time there's more of a um fractal nature to to all dimensions of life under democracy, not merely the political dimension of, of, of power and, um, and politicians. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point that you're bringing up there because a lot of this destruction of these traditions and these time preferences couldn't exist if we didn't have the technology and kind of the, the affluence that would allow society to continue despite their destruction. So you couldn't have really destroyed local communities, families, churches uh, the way you will have now 100 years ago because there would have been no one to feed the poor. There would have been no one to take care of the orphan children. There would have been no one to handle all the uh, kind of the all the uh, externalities that would have occurred once you broke down these institutions, destroyed these low time preference uh, traditions inside of society. But now that that technology, like you said, can can stave off some of the worst of this impact can can or or at least put it out. We, you know, a lot of, a lot of people now are discovering that there are serious consequences to birth control and other things that they didn't understand previously. Uh, but they but the damage is already kind of done. Right. And so that you can you can delay that sh- that in that consequence of short time preference uh, out to the point where it's no longer something that the uh, that society can kind of deal with because you that technology allowed you to kind of bridge that difference between embracing that low time preference behavior and the destruction or sorry that high time preference behavior and the destruction of low time preference institutions that existed before it 
Yeah, perfectly, perfectly stated. All right, so we'll just go ahead and jump into the next line here. Winston Churchill, who remarked in neo-reactionary style that the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter, is better known for suggesting that democracy is the worst form of government except all the other ones that have ever been tried. Whilst never exactly conceding that, okay, democracy sucks, in fact, it really sucks, but what's the alternative? The implication is obvious. The general tenor of this sensibility uh, is attractive to modern conservatives because it resonates with their wry, uh, disillusioned acceptance of the relentless civil of relentless civilizational deterioration, and with the associated intellectual apprehension of capitalism as an unappetizing but an, an, an <clears throat> excuse me an illimitable default social arrangement, which remains after all catastrophic or merely Im, uh, impractical alternatives have been discarded. The market economy. Uh, on this understanding is no more than a spontaneous survival strategy that stitches itself together amidst the ruins of a politically devastated world. Things will probably get worse forever. So it goes. So there's your Vonnegut reference. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I, so this is a, this is a passage that I would not have really considered before I kind of ran into Nick land here that this, this kind of attitude of, well, democracy, but it's, you know, what else are you going to do? really does work in with this con modern conservative attitude, which isn't actually interested in kind of conserving everything, but because it kind of assumes that civilizational decline is always going to, is just going to happen and that there's really no, there's no alternative. There's no other way to look at things. So we're just kind of stuck with this, doing our best to kind of hold on to the bits and bobs that, uh, you know, that, that are essential as long as we can until they kind of finally get destroyed. Right. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't think I have any, anything to add to that one, but yeah, it's yeah. just one of those that, yeah, I, I would not, you know, n when you look at kind of modern conservative conservatism now, that makes a little more sense, but it's not, not something I would have, uh, how I would have understood that Churchill quote had I, uh, before I read the, that kind of passage land. Hmm. Uh, so, so what is the alternative? There's uh, certainly no point trawling through the 1930s for one. You can imagine a 31st uh, a 21st century post uh, Demotus society one that saw itself as recovering from democracy, such as Eastern Europe sees itself recovering from communism, as su supreme Sith Lord of the neo-reactionaries, uh, Midges Molbug. He gets he gets nice titles from uh, land here. Yarvin gets a lot of mm. a lot of nice titles. Well, I suppose that's uh, that will makes uh, one of us. Molbug's formative influence influences are Austro-libertarian, but that's all over, as he explains, and he's quoting. Uh, Curtis Yarvin here. For those who don't know, uh, Curtis Yarvin, Minchus Mulbug, it's the same guy. It's his his pen name. Minchus Mulbug was his pen name before he wrote under his real name, Curtis Yarvin. Uh, so uh, Yarvin says, quote, libertarians cannot present a realistic picture of a world in which their battles get won and stay won. They wind up looking for ways to push a world in which the state's natural downhill path is to grow back up the hill. This pro prospect is Sisyphean and it's understandable why it attracts so few supporters. So funny enough, I actually got in this argument today with libertarians on Twitter. Um, so oh, this, really? Yeah, so uh, I, I was kind of trying to explain this very principle to libertarians that the the, the very nature, of, you know, even though uh, Curtis Yarvin started as a libertarian, uh, and uh, you know, we're we're quoting Hoppe here, so they have respect for libertarian thinkers, obviously. But it says the whole problem with libertarians is basically their understanding of power, their understanding of the state, their understanding of reality 
wants them to basically use some force out there that's definitely not the state to control the state and make it stop growing without therefore then creating a state that that just goes back and does exactly what the state was doing in the first place. And right. uh, very, everybody, everybody universally, simultaneously, unanimously agrees not to form a state. Yeah. Or I think that, or I forget the quote, the, oh, sorry, the, the quote that I, I don't even know who I'm quoting, but I, I, it's to me, it's always the, the, just the knockdown drag out defeated, you know, defeat libertarian argument is that phrase. Um, those who, those who want to win will always win over those who just want to be left alone. Yeah. The, those, who, those, those who want to win will always, uh, yeah, they'll always, uh, win over those who want to be left alone. Absolutely. Um, all right. So, uh, uh, we go back to land here. He's done quoting Yarvin and he says, his awakening into neo-reaction comes from the Hobbesian recognition that sovereignty cannot be eliminated, caged, or controlled. Anarcho-capitalist utopias can never uh, uh, condense out of science fiction. Uh, divided powers flow back together like a shattered Terminator. And con uh, constitutions have exactly as much real authority as the sovereign uh, interpretive power allows them to have. The state isn't going anywhere. To those who run it, it's worth far more, uh, uh, far more, or far too much to give up. And as the concentrated instantiation of sovereignty in society, no one can make it do anything. If the state cannot be eliminated, Moldenberg argues, at least it can be cured of democracy or systematic degenerative bad government. And the way to do that is to formalize it. Uh, his approach is called neocameralism. So you already kind of touched on this a little bit here with the need for formalization. But this is a really critical passage. This is, again, something that's very difficult for a lot of people, small government, certain conservatives and libertarians. I saw somebody in uh, chat earlier ask, how is this any different from Hoppe then? And the answer is right here, uh, mm -hmm. that they basically say uh, both Land and uh, Yarvin here are saying you can't get rid of sovereignty. Sovereignty will always be conserved if you try to break it down. It's a, it's a really good imagery. If you try to shatter it, it, it pulls back together like the T-1000 uh, in the Terminator movies. Uh, and, and so the question is not how do we destroy the state or how do we destroy the sovereign or even necessarily how can we uh, uh, limit the sovereign with just pieces of paper, uh, assuming that a constitution does it, does it on its own? He makes the really important point here that the, you know, the, the constitution only really has the power that the uh, sovereign interpretation grants it. And so our, our way forward is not uh, kind of these classical understandings of liberalism where constitutions and arguments limit government but instead formalism is what's going to limit it going forward. Yeah. And I think that in this passage, re he's really evoking Schmidt Schmidt. There's a mm -hmm. lot of Carl Schmidt in here. Um, I'll admit that, you know, when I read Moldbug, a lot of the, like the neo-cameralism stuff kind of went over my head just because I've never been a big economics guy. And, you know, my, my understanding is that Yarvin's alter ego and, and, you know, favorite hero from history is Frederick the Great. Mm -hmm. And I embarrassingly and shamefully don't know enough about the reign of Frederick the Great to to have all the context as to why he's apparently, you know, the the greatest monarch that um, history ever, ever produced. Um, I, I believe it. <laughs> I'll defer to Yarvin. <laughs> but um, I did not. Yeah, I did not have enough. I don't know, it, you know, when you first read it, or if, yeah. you, if you had enough reference points to understand neocameralism 
I cannot say that I was uh, at the time when I first encountered Yarvin that I understood uh, Frederick the Great that well, though I, I think I understood, you know, cameralism very well. And as we look at this, um, you know, you might find that you disagree with Yarvin's idea of kind of the distributed CEO uh, or, you know, kind of the, the CEO who is accountable to, uh, I shouldn't say distributed CEO, it's, it's, a, it's unified, but uh, but but is accountable to these shoulder, these real shareholders. But the key thing here, even if you don't agree with kind of his CEO King, is the formalization, and that's the part of neocameralism that I think anyone can grasp and agree with if you kind of understand what's going on here. But let's go ahead and just go to the quote on neocameralism before we we uh, yak about it too much, so we can kind of understand what it is. So he's quoting Yarvin here again, or Minchus Mulbug again. Remember, same guy here. So. Uh, to a neo-cameralist, neo a state is a business which, uh, which owns a country. A state should be, uh, should be managed like any other large business by dividing logical uh, ownership into negotiable shares, each of which yields a precise fraction of the state's profit. A well-run state is very profitable. Each uh, share has one vote, and the shareholders elect a board which hires and fires managers. The business's customers are its residents. A profitable manage a profitably managed neocameralist state will, like any business, serve its customers uh, serve its customers efficiently and effectively. Misgovernment equals mismanagement. So this is really simple. Uh, it sounds complicated, but it's really simple. Uh, basically, the people are the customers, right? And you stay or go inside the state, whether or not you would like, just like you would stay or go inside a restaurant that you want to continue frequent. The food's good. I'll keep coming here. The food's bad. I'm going to the restaurant across the street. This is Yarvin's vision of the state. You can stay in the state if you think it's doing a good job. You can leave the state if you think it's a bad job. You can vote with your feet, but you don't actually have a voice in governance. The uh, the CEO king the, in the neo-cameralist state is the one who's in charge and the uh, the actual stakeholders of the government are the ones who uh, you select a board and the board holds kind of that guy accountable. So it's not a king with the king does have absolute power in the sense that he can make whatever decisions, but the king can be replaced if he's doing a bad job and the citizens can leave if he's doing a bad job. There's a lot more problems. And this is why I say try not to, to sit on neocameralism too much because there's a lot of problems with neocameralism here, uh, Mulbug isn't uh, approaching, you know, kind of pointing the fact that, like, well, not everyone's going to allow people to leave their state. He's not going to, uh, you know, leave their country. He's not going to address the fact that actually leaving countries has a cost for people. And so it's not as simple as just picking up and leaving. He's not going to address the fact that this would fracture communities. There's a lot he's not going to address here. Again, he's thinking in a very, you know, uh, kind of highly autistic, uh, you know, computer programmer, how to solve the solution. It works like a business uh, kind of thing here. There, there's some good points in here, but but just don't get lost and think that this is the entire argument uh, that's happening here. Uh, the, there is much more around this. Like I said, the formalism, I think, is is the more important part, but it is good to understand neocameralism as we go forward. All right, so uh, be, jumping back to Land's commentary on, uh, on neocameralism. Firstly, it's essential to squash the democratic myth that a state belongs to the citizenry. The first point of neocameralism is to bring out the real stakeholders in sovereign power, not, not to perpetuate sentimental lies about mass enfranchisement. Unless ownership of the state is formally transferred into the hands of its actual rulers, the neocameral transition will simply not take place. 
power will remain in the shadows and the democratic farce will continue. So again, this is the formalism that you were talking about last things, right? We it, this this transition away from democracy only works if the power is formally uh, shown to be connected to the people in charge, the people granting things that the real holders of power. We're getting rid of this illusion that the average dude who is you know working at you know his nine to five job and has you know a house somewhere in the suburbs is actually having a meaningful a degree of power over the political system. Yeah, and and, and ironically, and perhaps intuitively counterintuitive to those of us, you know, come of age under democracy, is that that work nine to five worker might actually there might be a bit more dignity to um, <laughs> admitting that lack of power under a formal system as opposed to um, being kind of um, you know spoon fed the propaganda that you're you're fully a fully enfranchised voter and, and decision maker uh within the polis right again you know the 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 in the the thing that keeps your political leaders from really being held accountable is you know is not that you don't get to vote it's that you're you're blaming people who vote the whole time you're not holding no one no one is holding joe biden accountable not that he's even making decisions right but but no one is holding Joe Biden accountable. They're they're all yelling at their neighbor. They're yelling at all the Democrats. They're they're pretending they're pretending that the guy down your street and not say the guy who manages the Federal Reserve is the one who's responsible for what's happening to your paycheck. Right. Uh, so uh, we'll just jump back into the next paragraph here. So secondly, the ruling class must be plausibly identified. It should be noted immediately in uh, contradistinction to Marxist principles of social analysis. This is not the capitalist bourgeoisie. Uh, I, know, I know I say that word wrong. Deal with it. Logically, it cannot be. The power of the business class is already clearly formalized in monetary terms. So the identification of capital with uh, political power is perfectly redundant. It is, it, it is necessary to ask, rather, who do capitalists pay for political favors? How much these favors are potentially worth? and how the authority to grant them is distributed. This requires the maximum of moral, uh, the, a maximum of moral iteration that the entire social landscape of political bribery, also known as lobbying, is exactly mapped, and the administrative, legislative, judicial, media, and academic privileges accessed by such bribes are converted into fungible shares. Insofar as voters are worth bribing, there is no need to entirely exclude them from this calculation although their portion of sovereignty will be estimated with their appropriate derision. Uh, the conclusion of this exercise is the mapping of, uh, of a ruling entity that is the truly dominant instance uh, of the democratic polity. Moldbug calls it the cathedral. So that sounds really complicated. There's a lot going on there, right? But I think it's, it's actually pretty simple when we break it down. He's saying, look, we, we need to identify everybody who's in charge. It's not the voters. But also, the business businesses might have power, but their power is obvious because they have money, and we can all see the money. the The things we actually need to formalize, the things we actually need to account for, are the things that are the power that is bought with that money. Why does it hold power? These these media, these these legislative, uh, these administrative, all of these different functionaries. Why do they have power? Why are businesses paying them? We need to formalize that connection, right? Yeah, it's funny. It put me in, in mind of like a conversation I got into a little while ago with uh, 
with a, a, a liberal because I've, I've had my like, I've had my, I've, I'm so far down the, the neo-reactionary wormhole, Oren, that I forget what concepts are like familiar or like popular, popularly ascribed to by, you know, the, the masses, by, by the normies. And I just was, was having a conversation, like a semi-political conversation. And I just like, I forget the full context, but I just mentioned the term elite like, mm -hmm. you know, oh, this person is an elite or like the elite. And this guy was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, no, what, 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 what did you just say? What did you call? Like, I mean, he knew enough, like the only context and framing for the term elite was like, you know, I don't know, something coming out of like QAnon, red state, you know, tr troglodyte monster people. But like he, uh, it, he, he just had no concept of, the fact that somebody can be an elite if they're a member of like, he would not use that word to car to characterize a member of the media or a tenured professor or a, a, a non-elected bureaucrat. And to me, it's just sort of the water that I swim in nowadays. And it makes just complete in intuitive sense that like, you know, if that's, that person is an elite, like going to college is a, is an elite factory. Or if you like, or at least if you e even just want to LARP as an elite um, you have to go to college, but it's still kind of a, a, a dirty word to, to call someone one, an elite. And I think what he's saying in this paragraph is simply like elite is something that needs to enter the lexicon the same way that aristocrat was common in the Roman empire. You know, you're an aristocrat, you have certain privileges, you have a certain station, you have certain formalized power. Um, yeah, yeah. And no, that's what think... we lost is the, the formal acknowledgement of that power. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. It's really difficult for people because in America, especially we have, we kind of pride ourselves on that. We, that we don't have classes, right? Like we may, we might say, we understand that uh, there there's, there's like the low class, middle class and upper class, but everyone just defines themselves as middle class. Like people who make $30,000 a year and people who make $120,000 a year call themselves middle class. Right. And so we, we think of this as a purely monetary thing. And so when we're looking at this and we're saying, okay, no, there's a group of people, there's a class of people, there's an elite class that have a certain set of power. They have certain types of jobs. They have certain form of culture. They have a certain influence on society. And yeah, that middle level bureaucrat might only be making 60 or $70,000 a year, but he has way more power than a small business owner who's making double or triple what he's making. The, the, the difference is, is really stark. It's not money can equal power, but it's not a one to one thing. And that's why I think it's so hard, especially for people on the right, to grasp the concept of the cathedral oftentimes to, to, or the deep, you know, the, the, the I guess the deep state is, is another thing people call it. They don't really like that because people only think about the government side of it, not the media, not not the uh, not the other apparatuses of kind of the academia and all those things that are also connected to. Uh, the cathedral, but it's really hard for people to grasp that because they have a hard time understanding that there could be a class of people of, that is organized around those special privileges, those special powers that you're talking about, even though their paychecks might not immediately place them in a really fancy mansion or a fancy car somewhere. Right. And so if there, if, if there was a revolu a formalist revolution, what would happen just to kind of tie this down and make it more tangible is like, if you were at a cocktail party and you found yourself in a conversation with a journalist from the New York Times and you ask that person what they did for a living, they would say, I work for the State Department. 
<laughs> so you know, yeah. in in some way that would be be more more of a yeah. formal. I'm, I'm a government. I'm a government official. Yeah. I, I write yeah. for the New York Times. Yeah, yeah. Of course, of course, I'm a government official. I I work as a HR director. Yeah, that that would be a far more that would be a far more honest uh, way to to formalize and understand that. Uh, the formalization of political power, thirdly, allows for the possibility of effective government. Once the universe of democratic corruption is converted into freely transferable shareholders in government corp, the owners of state can initiate the rational corporate governance, beginning with the appointment of a CEO. As with any business, the interests of the state are not precisely formalized as the, max, as the maximization of long-term shareholder value. There is no longer any need for residents, clients, to have any interest in polit politics whatsoever. In fact, to do to do so would be uh, would be to exhibit semi-criminal proclivities. If government corp does not deliver acceptable value for the ta uh, for taxes, sovereign rent, then they can notify the customer's service function and, if necessary, take the customer their their uh, their custom elsewhere. GovCorp could concentrate upon running an efficient, attractive, vital, clean, and secure country of a kind that is able to draw customers, no voice, free exit. So again, guys, we mostly started this with the critique of government. Now he's getting into the possible solution. So it's probably important to, or rather, the critique of, 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 of democratic government and now he's getting to the possible solutions. It's important to separate those two. However, you do not have to buy in to the neo-cameral system that they're kind of uh, explaining now to understand the critique of government that happened prior to this, the, the critique of democracy. You could you could uh, look at other solutions. However, uh, I, you know, I think it is worth getting into this because they are still talking about uh, kind of issues uh, of uh, democratic influence and how those might be addressed. So even if you're not 100% on board with this CEO monarch idea, you can still understand uh, what they're saying about, okay, we're formalizing all these people. We're understanding exactly who's in charge, exactly who holds influence. We're, we're walking away from the myth that individual people have a, uh, have a serious uh, ability to wield power through their vote. And instead, we're giving them the power that they really have, which is their kind of the ability to kind of take their business elsewhere. Yeah, like to select your product the way that you would an Apple product or something right. like that. I have a lot of problems with the, um, <clears throat> I know it's complicated because it, you know, a lot of these are, we're, we're talking about mold bug through land and often lands re-articulations of mold bug are perfectly acceptable. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I do, I, I know you and I both, Oren, have problems and, and take issue with like the CEO monarch. I think a lot of that has to do with that, that sort of lack of a spiritual dimension to, to mold bug. I think a monarch is, is more than an executive when it comes to a people and a nation. But I do think one thing that's kind of undeniable and, and um, is, is that corporations as they exist today have this ability to sort of um, thrive under the, the guidance of an individual genius. This is sort of, I think, where Moldbun gets his love and admiration for Thomas Carlyle and, and hero worship of just, you know, more like, you know, he talks a lot about Apple and Apple is really, if you're talking about Apple, you're really talking about the genius of Steve Jobs and like the singularity of vision and dynamism and, and effort and genius of a Steve Jobs. Um, and, you know, often genius 
something that's just kind of flourishing or changes the world, a company that kind of comes out of nowhere and just re <laughs> reformulates the whole landscape the way something like, you know, Apple did by, by putting a, 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 an iPhone in everybody's hand. That's dri driven by a, that. That is driven by a formalized genius visionary CEO uh, like, like a Steve jobs. Um, and I think a big point that they have is because like, that's, that's exactly the type um, gene could never succeed because of this, um, this lack of formalism and this lack of ownership, the way that uh, right. a CEO has total ownership and accountability for something. And that's, yeah. And that's definitely, I think why Yarvin so often relates that back because that's the only way he, that's the only time he has really seen that in kind of uh, the, the kind of the near past. Uh, maybe maybe CEO isn't the best way to frame it, but it's it's the only examples he have he really has of people like you're talking about Steve Jobs, where they have total control and they're able they're able to drive things in that way. They they have a a monarchy level of control over things, and so you can you can approve or disapprove of their job, but you know directly who's at charge in charge, who's at fault. Uh, what, where the victories and the losses come from. And right, so that's right. the kind of accountability that he, he's trying to secure here in the formalization. Uh, there's yeah. another, like whether here. you, I, I, well, one last point or, you know, sure, think sure. about it like that, like you, you can, you can like the, the Victorian era or you can hate the Victorian era era, but it's the Victorian era. Right. right. <laughs> you, you know, who might have been in charge during that time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, there's another quote here in a little bit, guys, but I want to I want to jump down to to kind of near the end here because uh, it's going to talk a little more about democracy, which is the main part of this. This will really be a stream on neo cameralism. Uh, but I want to want to get back to where they're talking about democracy. And we're also running a little longer here. So I, I want us to be able to get uh, to everything we want to talk about before we sign off. So I'm just going to start back up with Land talking here. He says in European classical antiquity, democracy was uh, recognized as a familiar face of cyclical political development, fundamentally uh, decadent in nature and primarily to a uh, to a slide into tyranny, uh, or and primary preliminary to a slide into tyranny. Today, this classical understanding is thoroughly lost and replaced by a global democratic ideology entirely lacking in critical self-reflection that is asserted not as a credible social scientific thesis or even as a spontaneous popular aspiration, but rather as a religious creed or, uh, of a specific historical, uh, historically identifiable kind. So here Land is just stating the fact that throughout history, most people understood democracy as dangerous. It was not seen as progress. It was not seen as uh, some champion of uh, good and the advancement of people. Democracy was understood as dangerous and very likely to lead to social decline. In fact, uh, basically the two were often considered synonymous. And he says that instead today, uh, these these uh, democratic values are basically infused with a quasi-religious tone to kind of keep people from understanding uh, the, the this more classical idea that democracy is a force of entropy and not one of kind of perfect extropy. Yeah, it's it's funny. One just real quick note on that, you know, it, like when you learn about Athens in school, like in grade school or high school or just like in popular culture, it's always like, oh, the ancient Greeks, that's Athens. Athens was a democracy, the birthplace of democracy. 
Athens was the greatest. And then when you actually kind of get around, if you're interested in this sort of stuff to like read the original, like ancient sources and texts and contexts of like, you know, Athens was a democracy for a hot minute. And then it got wiped out by its neighbors. And anybody that wrote about it for the next 500 years was just basically saying, yeah, don't try that. (laughs) Did not (laughs) go well. Greeks were like, what was Athens thinking? This led to their death. Like the Spartans wiped them out and thank God. We don't, none of us have to still deal with that Athenian democracy. Yeah, I, I literally, so I was, a, I was a teacher and I, I was having this debate. Like I was, I was talking to another teacher while we were having this conversation and they're like, well, you know, de, you know, and the Athenians, that was democracy. That was the birth of equality. That was the birth of, of, of what became our civilization. So obviously well, that was the death of Athens. <laughs> well, well, well that, that's the funny part is like, we should go through all of this, like why, why Athens was better than Sparta and, 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 you know, why it's, uh, it, it ultimately triumphed. I'm like, yeah, except Sparta won the war, right? <laughs> like, like yeah. that, that did not, but anyway, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that, uh, that is not understood, uh, with a, with a lot of people here. Uh, but now he jumps into uh, a quote from Moldbug again, from Curtis Yarvin again, which says, uh, I received tradition I call universalism, which is a non-theistic Christian sect. Some uh, some other current labels for this tradition, more or less synonymous, are progressivism, multiculturalism, liberalism, humanism, leftism, political correctness, and the like. Universalism is the dominant modern branch of Christianity on the Calvinist line, evolving from the English dissenter or Puritan tradition uh, through the Unitarian, Transcendentalist, and Progressive movement. Uh, its ancestral briar patch also includes a few sideways sprigs that are important enough uh, in, to name, but whose Christian ancestry is slightly better concealed, such as Rousseauvian, uh, I don't even know how to say that one, uh, uh, Benthamite, Utilitarianism, Reformed Judaism, uh, Comtean uh, Positivism, German Idealism, uh, Marxist uh, scientific socialism, uh, Satrian existentialism, Heideggerian postmodernism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Universalism is, in my opinion, is best described as a mystery cult of power. It's a hard to imagine universalism without the state, as uh, malaria is without the mosquito. The point is, uh, the point is that this thing, whatever you care, uh, care to call it, is at least 200 years old and probably more like five. It's basically the Reformation itself, and just walking up to it and denouncing it as evil is about as likely to work as suing uh, Shubin Nogareth in small claims court. All right, so <laughs> now that I've uh, stumbled through all of those pronunciations, uh, so yeah, so this is this is kind of uh, Yarvin's classical argument that progressivism is basically a- the atheist deracination of Christianity. It's an even more extreme. Uh, an even more uh, kind of unhinged uh, version of already completely unmoored versions of kind of radical Puritan Christianity. uh, And that uh, basically it, it it eventually relies on the state in order to pull off this trick, which is kind of what we talked about earlier uh, about how a lot of these things would not have been possible if the state with a new set of technology had not been able to kind of step in and take over many of these uh, these kind of uh, low time or uh, high time preference costs that came after dismantling a lot of these traditions. Yes. Yeah. All right. We'll b- jump back in here for the last little bit. Then 
uh, to comprehend the emergence of our contemporary predicament uh, characterized by relentless totalizing state expansion, the proliferation of spurious positive human rights claims on the resources of others backed by coercive bureaucracy, politicized money, reckless evangelical wars of democracy, and comprehensive thought control arrayed in defense of universalistic, universalistic dogma accompanied by the degradation of science into government public relations function. Man, isn't it amazing how many of those things are, you know, this was written well over a, a decade ago at this point, right? But how many of those things are just spot on right now immediately to our own situation? Yeah, I know. That's It is shocking to, to realize how these two men like predicted everything. <laughs> Right. It's like I yeah. have to remind myself that this wasn't written yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. You really think about like, yeah, who could have predicted, uh, you know, going, you know, you know, going to war against a nuclear power in uh, in uh, Ukraine while simultaneously demanding that men, women are interchangeable, that they that a man can become a woman at any time. Oh, look, it's it's literally just predicted right here uh, that 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 would be absolutely necessary. It is necessary to ask how Massachusetts came to conquer the world as Moldbug does. With every year that passes, the international ideal of sound governance finds itself approximate, uh, uh, approximating more closely and rigidly to the standards set by the Grievance Studies Department of the New England Universities. This is the divine providence of the ranters and levelers, elevated to a planetary teleology, uh, the consolidation uh, and consolidating as the reign of the cathedral. The cathedral has substituted its gospel for everyone, uh, for everything we ever knew. Consider it the uh, consider just the concerns expressed by America's founding fathers, compiled by the liberty clinging comment number one here. And then he has just a list of anti kind of democratic quotes from founding fathers. Thomas Jefferson: "A democracy is nothing more than mob rule, where fifty one percent of people may take away the rights of the other forty nine. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, democracy is two wolves and a lamb voting on what to have for lunch. Liberty is a well-armed land contesting the vote. Uh, democracy, uh, John Adams, democracy has never lasted long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and merges itself. There never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. Uh, James Madison, democracy has, uh, democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. And finally, Alexander Hamilton, we are, a, we are a Republican government. Real liberty is never found in despotism or in the extremes of democracy. It has been observed that a pure democracy, if it were practic uh, practicable, would be the most uh, perfect government. Experience has proved that no position is more false than this. The ancient democracies in which the people themselves deliberated never possessed one good feature of government. Their very character was tyranny. All right, mm. guys. So we'll go ahead and wrap it up there. But yeah, last thoughts, uh, last things on kind of the, the founding father's argument against democracy there. Uh, I think, you know, I like this particular section titled today, Oren is really great land, old bug. And like you said, the in its totality is, um, you know, his, of mold bug and rearticulation of, of mold bug. I think there are other parts that you kind of get. This part kind of puts the mold bug before the land in a lot of places, whereas other sections you can kind of you you, you get the 
Landian philosophy and Landian contribution in, in, is foregrounded more. I'm sure you're going to be getting in at some point into more acceleration, um, accelerationist philosophy. Um, he'll start using more of his kind of creepy, chthonic, Lovecraftian imagery and, and cyber horror um, theory fiction and stuff like that. So I, I just mentioned that to encourage readers to, um, if you feel like this is redundant having read Yarvin, um, it's it's still well worth your time to read the totality of land because it starts to get more and more its own thing as he as he sort of escalates. Yeah, that, and that's exactly right. So far, we've we've only read from the Dark Enlightenment, um, and so the, the which is entirely a response to Moldbug, but the, that is not all of Nick Land's writing uh, for sure. He is uh, has has many other things, like he said, explores uh, very interesting uh, areas that are uniquely his own. Um, as you kind of branch out into other uh, of his documents. But I started here because I feel like a lot of these things are directly applicable to governments. The people will have already been familiar with some of Curtis Yarvin's arguments. And so this at least gives you some handholds to, to kind of uh, grasp as you kind of descend into uh, Nick Land's uh, work. Uh, you know, once, once you get to the darker depths, you're, you might be a little more on your own. But uh, this at least gives you a little bit of a little guidance. Uh, so we've got some questions of the people over here. Before we switch over, last things, uh, where can people find your excellent content? Is there anything they should be looking out for? Yeah, sure. And I, you know, I unfortunately probably have to go bail out my wife, Orin. So I'm going to leave you to to no handle these um, these chats. But uh, yeah, people can just search for my YouTube channel on uh, just type in last things. I think I come up first. I actually just uh, launched my website, which just basically kind of redirects people to to. Um, <laughs> to 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 youtube but if you go to lastthings.co um you can see my my fancy new wordpress page um and uh yeah people can find me on twitter as well um all my stuff is usually in all my show notes um but hey it was a lot of fun thanks for having me on to do this and um i'll 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 see you tomorrow yeah man absolutely yep have a good one all right take care all right, so guys, let's jump over to the questions of the people real quick. We got a few. Uh, Maddie Ice for five dollars. I love last things. He's got one of the greatest voices ever. I've listened to the Trojan Horse video uh, did with uh, Geo a few times. Please do it again. Yeah, no, Geo and Last Things are a great duo. I've had them on for. Uh, we also did that postmodern Christianity stream, which a lot of people liked. Uh, they they work really well together. Uh, last Things is a great uh, commentator. If you haven't watched. Uh, kind of his work he does a great job especially looking at culture movies tv shows breaks them down in very interesting ways and intersects them with a lot of the stuff we talk about uh kind of on uh, in our spheres in these shows and so i think you'll find his stuff very interesting he he's very busy guy he's got a family uh, he doesn't get to to publish as much as as i think he'd like to uh but his stuff is always great so make sure to check it out and i'll, I'll definitely try to get him and geo together again uh, Super Joe's midlife crisis for ten dollars. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, wait, you're a teacher, Oren? Yes, believe it or not, that was the case. How awful is the education system from the inside? It is uh, even worse than you think it is. Uh, it it is in a very bad place. It is only getting worse. Uh, I will probably start doing. I did one video explaining, uh, for instance, um, uh, restorative justice, uh, which is this like wild uh, kind of Marxist uh, liberation theology type of discipline that started in prisons and has made its way over to uh, to the school system. Uh, so I'll probably start doing more videos like that where I kind of explain uh, these things. It, it, it's the, the, the audiences don't really overlap all the time. So it's hard to just be like, and here's all the problems 
with schooling though more and more of you you know having kids and stuff so uh, maybe you'll find that stuff more interesting but I'll, I'll talk about it a little more how many hours of all class black history did you have to teach each day a, a lot um to be really clear uh most uh public school students think america invented slavery uh and that's the only thing america did until you know about 10 minutes ago if you if you talk to unfortunately a large amount of public school students that is more or less their understanding of american history because that's exactly how it's taught to them uh let's see here ronald mcnuggets for 25 dollars. thank you very much sir very uh, generous i appreciate that uh yarvin assumes that people are motivated solely by money and not destruction of religious or ethnic identities history and hobbesian vision of people shows that this would be false yarvin wants to neutralize economic zone uh, once neutralized economic zone, Schmidt thought anti-human. Yeah, I think those are all pretty good um, kind of uh, uh, criticisms of Yarvin. So here's the thing. So I think in moments, Yarvin does recognize some of the stuff. For instance, I've seen Yarvin in interviews say things like, yeah, I don't think actually that you can have a state without a church. Like these things are kind of intertwined. I think he recognizes at some level that this is essential. He's kind of gone with this idea that that really basically people's virtue has been so destroyed and their identities have been just so destroyed that like going forward, the only thing we're going to have is kind of this high utility economic zone. And so the best thing you can do is just like make the ver best version of that. And if you just get the democracy out of this stuff, then it's not a problem anymore. But that, and then actually I just got done writing the last uh, chapter of my book. Uh, so when it comes out, you guys can kind of uh, look at that, but I, I kind of take that argument to task a little bit uh, in that. Uh, but, but basically the, the long and short of it is I think he is ignoring truths about humanity. I think he is underselling kind of some of the spiritual and social sides of what's happened. Part of that is to be fair because those things are way, way harder to fix and much more difficult to explain in kind of the rationalist way that a lot of people want. A lot of people want a political philosophy that is nuts and bolts, hyper-realistic, um, you know, can can be immediately mapped onto uh, what we see right in front of us and doesn't really engage with the spiritual, the social, the metaphysical. Uh, a lot of people get uncomfortable when uh, political theories start to do that. But I think that's a mistake. Um, I think that kind of this realist Machiavellian philosophy is incredibly useful. Obviously, I'm somebody who uses it all the time. So I'm not decrying it as, as saying it doesn't have uses. But I think that getting stuck on it and thinking that this is the only way to view the world and the only way to understand uh, kind of humans is dangerous. Uh, I, I know Yarvin doesn't think that directly. But when it's the only lens you view societies through, then I think you end up making some pretty serious mistakes when you're trying to understand how to address things. Uh, but that said, obviously, still a large respecter of his work uh, wouldn't be spending so much time uh, kind of explaining these thoughts if I didn't think they had a lot of value. So that said, guys, thank you so much for coming by. I had a great stream. Like I said, Last Things is an excellent guest. You should definitely make sure to check out all of his stuff. And if it's your first time here, uh, you should go ahead and subscribe to this YouTube channel. Don't forget, guys, this also goes on to Rumble and Odyssey and Blaze TV. So if you want those platforms where you get, you know, you don't have to worry about censorship and those kind of things, you can check out 
the shows there as well. And of course, if you want to get these broadcasts as podcasts, you can subscribe to your favorite podcast platform. Just go over and look at the Oren McIntyre show there. And if you do, make sure to leave a review or rating. That really helps with the algorithm. Thanks for coming by, guys. And as always, I will talk to you next time.